Uh, we are in the uh, part three of a sermon series. You can grab your study guides, and hopefully those will be useful to you uh, a little later in the, in the series. Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, why people don't, people who don't go to church, why do they not? Why do they not go? Or why do they not participate in church if they were raised in church or they've been around church? Like, what keeps them away? And I go to these church conferences all the time, right, where people are always wringing their hands about why people don't go to, especially millennials. Everybody wants to talk about why millennials don't go to church. And they won't shut up about millennials. Like, is millennials, what do millennials want? And what are millennials looking for? And why don't millennials like us? Why don't they like us? You know, like, just... So bad. And, and you know, it, I, I'm so glad that I was born two years too late to be considered a millennial Generation X forever. Amen. Thank you. That, that was the Generation X response right there. That was perfect. What, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> totally Gen X of you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I love my generation so much. Um, but, you know, the whole millennials thing is just so out of control um, because all you... You're just pandered to all the time, millennials. I feel so bad for you. You're just pandered to. You're analyzed and sold to. Everybody wants to figure you out and box you in. And, and uh, you know, I, I think the church is, is no different, unfortunately. And we treat all millennials like they're the same guy. So the millennial generation is like, it should be more than one generation because it's 100 million plus people. It's a third of the American population is considered millennials. And so to treat them all like they're the 28-year-old, you know, bachelor living in his mom's basement looking for a job while playing Halo and checking Tinder <laughs> for notifications that never come and, like, you know, participation trophies on the bookshelf and, uh, you know, all the things. There's nothing the rest of us like to talk about more than millennials and their participation trophies. Like, you know. They've been giving ribbons just for showing up. Ah, they're so entitled. Nah, you know, like we just love uh, just, just going crazy on millennials with their participation trophies. And we say it, uh, you know, like it was their idea. <laughs> we say it like, like sometime, you know, 10 years ago, a bunch of millennial kindergartners got on the playground and said, you know, like what if everybody got a ribbon? Like, like it was their, like it, it came from them. You know, like, millennials aren't the ones that gave them the participation trophies. They didn't give them to themselves. Somebody else gave them to them. And millennials aren't the problem in America. America's problems can be traced back to the baby boomers. Like, the baby boomers are the problem. I would much rather, you know, boil all the baby boomers down to one person than the millennials, you know. Sorry, baby boomers. I love you, too. Baby boomers just as big as the millennial generation. And yet, you know, we think about people in these categories, especially those millennials I used to think, I thought for the longest time, that the number one reason why millennials don't go to church, even though more than half this room is filled with millennials. Like, so why millennials don't go to church like they used to or something, I don't know. But there's all this alarmism, right? But number one reason I thought was because the church won't shut up about why millennials aren't coming to church. Like it's all we ever talk about. And so millennials are like, I'm out. It's fine. I'll, I'll leave, you know, and I'll live up to that expectation. That was, my, that was my hunch for the longest time. And I think now, I think that's still a reason. I think it's just the second reason. I think the first reason why people of any generation check out and go elsewhere or don't give the church a second thought has to do with this book. 
And as we have, from the very beginning, sought to reach non-religious people with the story of Jesus, this book has presented itself as the greatest hurdle. Because people understand, non-religious and religious people alike, understand that this book is kind of central to our faith. Some people say Christians worship or revere this book. It's not exactly the case. But we worship the man that this book is about. And so if this story can't be trusted, then none of this that we're doing makes sense. And so what we do as Christians, guys like me, I get up here and I talk about this book as though everyone believes it. We just make a lot of assumptions. We study it. We talk about it we, as authoritative when, you know, most people probably come in this room every Sunday with a whole bunch of questions about this book and whether it should be trusted and why it should be trusted. Let me tell you kind of where we are as, as the story, Houston, right? So we're two years in now, um, and every Sunday we're seeing, uh, you know, upper 600, maybe 700 or so people in worship on Sunday mornings and evening together, right? And uh, that means probably because of the rate at which you guys come to worship, um, which is uh, one and a half to two times a month on average, um, which I love you, it's fine, no judgment here, but I'm just saying there's probably more than 700 people that are being reached. So people that consider themselves part of the story, probably more like 1,200 or something around that number. Since we began, over 200 people have outwardly given their lives to Jesus and decided to follow Jesus. But I think there's probably three or 400 more of you who haven't made a decision yet. And you're on the cusp of something. You've been kind of on the brink of some kind of a breakthrough with Jesus. Jesus has been working on you and you keep coming back, but there's something that's just maybe not quite clicking quite yet. I trust that it will. So the question becomes, when you've just made a decision or when you're about to, is, okay, I think I like Jesus. I think Jesus is a pretty good guy. He lived and died for me. I think I can, you know, give my life to him and follow him and make him the center of my life, all the stuff Pastor Eric always talks about. But what do I do then? And your impulse will be, i got to sign up for a mission trip. And there's nothing wrong with mission trips. I hope all of y'all join, not all of y'all, I hope 20 of y'all join me in the Dominican Republic June 6th through the 13th, Gio and I are leading a group. I'd love to get to know 20 of y'all even better. We go overseas together, do some great work with Go Ministries. Don't hear me saying that mission trips are not what you should do when you're a new Christian. But listen, nothing is more important. Mission trips, teams, small group participation, worship, none of it's more important than you getting better acquainted with that book. Than you understanding the Bible more. Because here's what will happen. You'll become the most gracious, like, missionary person in Houston. You'll be freeing the captives and trafficking and you'll be serving the poor and you'll be going to church under the bridge and you'll be doing all this great stuff and then somebody will raise a question to you about that Bible and you will have no idea what to do with it. And it will threaten the very foundation of this new faith that you have. And so one of our goals in 2017 is to offer more and more opportunities for people to get better acquainted with Scripture. Uh, we have two men's Bible studies, for example. One's on Monday morning, one on, is on Thursday morning. The Monday morning's been going on a while. Thursday morning's brand new. A few weeks ago, we sat down for our very first study with a group of men on Thursday morning, 7 o'clock. And I came, I was so proud of my lesson that I had prepared. It was on some passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, and that's where we were going to start. And I was real happy with all the studying that I had done. I was really going to give it to these guys and let them see how smart I was. And then we went around the room and introduced ourselves. And I realized that half the guys in the room had never been to a Bible study before. Like they had never seriously studied the Bible. Some of them grew up in Catholic churches. 
where they were told bits and pieces of scripture, but they never dug in themselves. Some of them came from other faiths. We had one guy with a Mormon background, one guy who was, uh, his family is Muslim. He was Muslim until recently. And we have another guy who grew up fundamentalist, rigid Christian, and his family just turned him right off of the Bible because they were so rigid and strict and judgmental. They used the Bible as a weapon against him and his friends. And so he gave up on the Bible a long time ago. He hated the Bible for a season in his life until his wife convinced him that he needs to like it in order for her to like him. And then he, and then he gave another chance. He gave another chance, and he's here, and, and he's a part of this Bible study now. But I realized at that point in time that my plan to talk about Matthew 8, you know, 13 or whatever, it was not going to work because these guys had no familiarity to speak of with, you know, the Bible, much less Matthew chapter 8. And so we got to start from the start. we got to go to the, the beginning. Talk about why there's a Bible and who wrote it and why there's 66 different books with 40-plus different authors over a 1,000 years' time and why there, there seem to be discrepancies here and there in the Bible. How do you reconcile those? Why are there four Gospels instead of just one? If it's a true story, why do you need four different points of view? And why do those four Gospels not always say the same thing in the same order, in the same way? And, and why do we have all these different um, books? And, and, and why should I trust it is really the question. And so I thought, as part of our seven-question series, I thought maybe we could spend a little time today talking through the same things that I talked to those guys about on Thursday morning. Those of you who are seasoned Christians, this will be remedial Christianity 101 stuff here. But listen, um, sometimes we forget things uh, that we learned years ago. We need to relearn them. And so I hope that this is helpful to you guys in some way as well. So where do we get these books? Where do they come from? Why do we believe them? There's a word that you should know as we dig in here, and this is where your study guides start to come in a little more handy, I hope. Um, I always say those are optional. I'm a little more heavy-handed about study guides in today's sermon just because of the kind of material we're covering. If, uh, if you have a way to, to use one of those, that'd be great. We're not going through the whole study guide today. I planned a great big sermon, uh, and I bit off more than I could chew, so we're going to get through about half of that study guide today, and I'll pick up where I left off in a future sermon. So uh, the word that you need to know today is canon. Canon is just a word that, that meant fixed. And a canon of anything uh, is just a fixed set of materials, a fixed set of books. You can't take away from it. You can't add to it. It is what it is. And so when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. The Old Testament or Hebrew Bible canon, 39 books, was pretty much set in stone by the time Jesus was born. There was just a little bit of uh, controversy or questions about Esther because Esther is an awesome story, but it never explicitly mentions God. And there's another question about Song of Songs, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the rest of them, no question at all. And so when we look at the Old Testament um, books, the whole story, 39 books, they are based on the foundation of the first five. The first five books are known as the Torah or the law. And the law was the foundation, not for the Bible, but for the Hebrew culture. This is how the people remembered who they were. When they lived through times of slavery, when their whole lives were destroyed, when their temple was destroyed, when their families were torn apart, they sat around campfires and told these stories about Father Abraham and his descendants. And they remembered who they are. They remembered who they were and who God is and who they were in God and in his story and his great plan because God made promises to Abraham and we're Abraham's 
children and grandchildren, and God will be faithful to see this through. Yeah, we're in chains today, but just wait. God's not finished. So they would, they would tell these stories from Genesis 12, 15, 18 of God's promises, and they would find reason to hope and hold on in those, in those stories of Father Abraham. Also in the Torah, we have the law, the like written rules, the 613 rules, the law that are found in, that's found in, uh, mostly in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Some of it's at the end of Exodus as well. And these were the rules that framed the Hebrew existence. This is what set the Hebrew people apart. Following these food laws, these sexual laws, following these cultural norms, it's what made them different. It's what made them holy and set apart from the rest of the world because God chose these people, had a special plan for them. And, of course, history has shown us that they were right. God did, in fact, have a plan for them. And many of those promises have obviously uh, come to pass in our time. So that's what the first five books um, represent. The next uh, part of the, of the Hebrew Bible is, uh, are the history books. The history books run from Joshua uh, through Judges and then Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now these books tell the stories of how the people, tell me if this story is familiar. It's the same story kind of on repeat, right? Um, the people are blessed by God. God blesses them so richly that they actually forget at some point it was God that blessed them because they're doing so well. They're like, we must be pretty awesome. Like we did this for ourselves and then they don't realize that it was God that did this for them. My first experience in Houston was when it was $115 a barrel oil and everybody was like, woo, we're amazing. And then a year later, everybody's like, God, where are you? You know, and that's the story, right? Like when things are great, we're like, oh, we're the best. And when things fall apart, we're like, God, what happened? And God's like, I was here, but you weren't talking to me. And then God's there to rescue them. Time after time, he rescues them, and that's the story. It's a story of covenant making, covenant breaking, and the covenants being remade. So the people built altars to God when he was good to them, and then they forgot about that, and they started building altars to other things. And then those altars were broken by war or poverty or famine, and they rebuilt their altars to God again. And every time, God was ready to welcome them home. It's really, the Old Testament is full of God's grace in spite of what you might have heard. As I said earlier, Esther is the only one of those that was ever disputed in terms of the canon of Scripture. Ruth, uh, I'll just throw this in there, is my daughter's favorite story. If you've got a little daughter, she better know the story of Ruth and Esther for that matter because the Old Testament is full of female heroines, heroes of the faith that uh, if you've been told the Bible is anti-women, uh, you need to hear a different um, story today. Next uh, are the five poetry and wisdom books. Poetry and wisdom books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and uh, Song of Songs. So uh, I want you to consider this because I think people that aren't real familiar with the Bible, or you think you are but you never really read it for yourself, I think people just think it's full of rules, and then there's Jesus, and then there's more rules. So there's rules in the Old Testament, and then Jesus, and then there's Paul with his rules. And yet, when you read the Bible, you see that poetry is what makes up one-third, more than a third, of the biblical canon. More than one-third, 35% of the Bible verses are poetry, art, right? So the question becomes, why 
why not make the canon, which is serious stuff, serious law and stuff like that, and then let the poets have their little book on the side where they can be artsy-fartsy and just like, eh, be poets, you know, whatever. But like, have the Bible and then have your poetry. Why include poetry in the canon of Scripture, which is supposed to speak to ultimate truth? What do you think about that? I don't need answers, but I hope your wheels are spinning a little bit. Like, what that means about God and about us and what it means to believe in the Bible, that one-third of the Bible is poetry and song. You can tell those parts of the Bible by the way it's indented. Anytime you flip through the Old Testament, you'll see some parts that are indented. And those are the poetic parts. Those parts are, are meant to be read rhythmically or meant to be sung. Like the story of Job, which everyone struggles with. Job and the suffering and what happened to Job? Why is God so mean to Job? 95% of Job is a poem. Some of the most beautiful poetry you will ever read in any language. Job is, is a beautiful, artistic, artfully told story. Um, and, and I'm not saying that changes the authority of it. I'm not saying that changes how you should uh, understand it as authoritative, but I do think it changes how you should read it and, and how you make sense. Of it. A lot of people struggle with some of the Psalms too. Some of the most violent parts of Scripture are in the Psalms. You may have been told that the Bible is pro-violence. I came across a blog post this week from an Ivy League, like, world-class scholar who point-blank said the Bible is the most pro-slavery book in, uh, in, in the world has ever seen. And he gave no proof for it, no evidence for it. He just said it, and people start believing these things because of little, you know, proof texts that are taken out of context, and especially in places like the Psalms. But the Psalms are a songbook. It was a hymnal. And if you know anything about music, you know that music is how human beings express some of our, our deepest and darkest emotions. We express through song how, you know, we plan to cope and how we get through some of those awful times. And for a people that were being torn apart by war and famine, and they always had an enemy at their front door, and, uh, and uh, their land was always in ruins. I mean, sometimes uh, some of those emotions come through. And some of the awful things in Scripture that are hard to read, for sure, should be read through the lens of song, through the lens of music, and the people that um, wrote it. So, uh, finally, in the Old Testament, we have the prophets. Um, prophets are the major prophets and the, the minor ones. You see them on the screen. The prophets in the Old Testament were never Miss Cleo. They were never predicting the future, like crystal ball stuff. That's not what prophecy meant in the Old Testament. There was some of that around Jesus. And again, a lot of those prophecies came shockingly, uh, accurately true. But uh, most of what they did, 99% of what Old Testament prophets did was just critique the present. They weren't telling the future. They were critiquing the present. So when the people started uh, building their altars to other things and forgetting about God, it was the prophets that called them back. It was the prophets that said, look, guys, this religion you have, it's just superficial. It's all about money. You were forgetting the poor. We're forgetting the orphan. We're forgetting the widow. The prophets of the Old Testament were the ones that laid down the truth. And they often suffered because of it. They were often outcasts from their communities. They were not popular guys in their day. A good example of a prophetic text from the Old Testament is one some of you might have heard from Micah, the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. This just perfectly surmises what, what the prophets um, wrote about, I believe we have this uh, for the screens, uh, here we go, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? That's what you did in a religious, merit-based religious system. With calves a year old. Will God be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn son, child sacrifice, for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has shown you. O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God? This kind of thing is what the prophets were saying to the people all the time. And those things were being said up until about the year 300, um, which began the Maccabean era, and that's a sermon for another time. 300 years later, Jesus was born. Now, um, I want to transition out of the New Testament, and you'll see that in your, uh, in your study, guys, that I talk about it in terms of a timeline. We, we are pretty sure that Jesus was born somewhere around 4 B.C. and lived until 29 or so um, A.D., um, which is weird. I know Jesus was alive for four years before uh, Christ, uh, but I just think it, the, the numbers don't always add up like, like uh, you know, in a neat, tidy way. So Jesus was born 4 B.C., lived until 29 or so uh, A.D., and um, then the New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell Jesus' stories, but those were not the first books of the New Testament that were written. In fact, the Gospels were some of the last books of the New Testament to be written. Before that, we think the very first writings by New Testament era Christians are writings that we don't have anymore. They were lost to history or they're locked in a vault under the Vatican or they're somewhere, but we don't know where they are. And we know these things are, uh, to, to, we know them as the proto-gospels or the pre-gospels. And there's a reason why we know they exist. I'll talk about it in just a minute. But just know that the very first Christians, the people that followed Jesus, were writing down their stories about Jesus' life, where he went, what he did. We don't know that it was a full gospel, but it was snippets uh, of his life here and there that they were writing down and preserving. Um, we think those proto-gospels were the first things that were written um, somewhere uh, between 35 and 50 um, A.D. Now, as we know at the New Testament, the first books in the New Testament that were written were called the epistles. Uh, they were the letters of a man named Paul. Paul was a professional Pharisee. And you all know, probably if you've been around here at all, how the Pharisees and Jesus got along. Not well. Pharisees were the mortal enemies of Jesus, and, uh, and Paul was one of them. He was climbing the ladder of success as a Pharisee. He was charged. He was the, the head guy in the anti-Christian uh, effort to stamp out the Christian uprising. He was in charge of making Christians' lives hell. He broke into Christians' houses. He had them taken out in the streets and beaten. He presided over the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Paul was there. Stephen ordered, I mean, Paul ordered Stephen's death. And then sometime around the year 37 or 38 AD, Jesus came to Paul in a vision and rocked that man's world. And nothing was the same after that. So Paul had a, a, a personal experience with Jesus. And that Pharisee, who had been responsible for the deaths of Christians, that Pharisee overnight became convinced of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And so that Pharisee, Paul, who they all knew to be looking out for, and they knew that when Paul shows up, you run, he shows up at their next worship service. He's like, hey guys, I'm one of you now. And they're like, ah. I don't know, like, 
checking for stones, you know, like, <laughs> and like uh, they, were, they were hesitant to accept him. And so it took a few years before Paul ascended to leadership in the church. And they trained him, and he was ready, and then he became a church planter. Paul became such a prolific church planter. We think he planted 20 churches. We think he traveled over 10,000 miles on foot planting those churches. And every time he left one church to plant another, he would write a letter to the old church and check in on them and see how they're doing. He would correspond with the churches that he had already planted. And those letters are what you find when you open your New Testament, go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, which is the history book of the New Testament, and get into Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. And they're in that order from Longest to shortest, by the way, if you've ever wondered why Paul's letters are in that order. It's Paul's longest letter to Paul's shortest um, letter. It's not about importance. It's just about length. And so uh, Paul wrote these letters. When you are reading those letters, you're reading someone else's mail. Uh, which is a federal offense, and you should be careful about who sees you doing five years in prison. I read that online this week that you can get for reading someone else's mail, so uh, watch out. But uh, you should know that Paul didn't know that he was writing scripture when he wrote those letters. He was writing to his friends, new Christians, and every context was different. And so that's why you perceive a few differences in what Paul teaches the different Christians because they were in different places. They spoke different languages, and they did different things. And had different problems. And so, of course, Paul, as a pastor, is going to speak differently into their communities and contexts. Those discrepancies don't make the Bible less believable. It should make it more trustworthy and true. Other people wrote letters as well. We have two letters from Peter. We have three letters from John. We have a letter from Jesus' brother James and his brother Jude. Um, and I feel like I'm forgetting somebody, but maybe that was it. Um, but these letters were all written about the same uh, time frame. And these are called uh, the epistles with an E, epistles, right? <clears throat> so there were two things that were happening around uh, the end of that part of the, of the timeline. In the mid to late 60s, uh, all those apostles are being killed off. So Peter has, uh, is being crucified. He refused to be crucified like Jesus. He begged them to crucify him upside down because he didn't deserve to be crucified the way Jesus was. So they crucified him hanging upside down on a tree. That's how Peter died. Paul was beheaded in Rome um, by Nero and his boys. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from the top, the pinnacle of the temple roof in Jerusalem. And uh, when the fall didn't kill him, uh, everyone stoned him and beat him with clubs until he was dead. That happened in 62. AD. James was probably the first of those three guys to die. The other thing that was happening is that uh, Rome and their army was closing in on Jerusalem. So Rome was increasingly upset about the uprisings, upheaval, and the social problems in Jerusalem, and so they just wanted to be done with it. And so in the year 70, they finally finished their invasion, and Jerusalem was completely flattened, burned to the ground. The temple was gone. Everything was gone. And so that was happening and in progress in the late 60s. And so what do people do when they feel like their uh, lives or their uh, heritage may be in danger? Or what do you do when your favorite aunt dies? You want to write down the stories, right? 
or maybe if you're like me, you say someone should write those stories down, and you never do. Like, but somebody, uh, somebody writes the stories down. That's what happened in the late 60s. Mark, Matthew, and Luke were written in the late 60s during that time of upheaval, 68 to 70 A.D. Mark was first, and we are pretty sure a guy named Mark actually wrote Mark. We're not as sure about Matthew. We're somewhat sure about Luke, uh, definitely about John, and definitely pretty much about Mark. Uh, Mark was the first gospel written. Uh, it's the quickest read of the gospels. Mark was uh, Peter's translator, his uh, right-hand man. So Peter was traveling all over the region too, planting churches, but Peter was an illiterate fisherman. He didn't speak Greek like everybody else in the outlying areas, and so he needed somebody to translate as he told the gospel to them, and it was Mark who did it. So when Peter was arrested and crucified upside down, Mark said, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to write down exactly what Peter was telling everybody word for word, before it's lost to history, before they come and arrest me and hang me as well, you know. And so when you read Mark's gospel, you're reading Peter's version of Jesus' life, which makes sense because Peter's very impulsive and he's like uh, quick to talk and Mark's always like, and then, and then, and then. And it's like if Peter was telling you Jesus' story, that's exactly how it would sound. I'm convinced. A few years later, uh, we have Matthew and Luke about the same time but in totally different places and written totally differently. Matthew's written for a Jewish audience. Luke is written for a Gentile audience, and, uh, and, and they both pull almost equally from Mark's gospel. So they both share from Mark's gospel word-for-word word kinds of things, right? And the, the relationships between those three gospels fascinates me. It might bore you completely, but Matthew and Luke pull word-for-word word from Mark's gospel. So you see triple tradition there. 41% of Luke, 45% of Matthew pulled directly from Mark word-for-word word in the same way. And then 35% of Luke Luke is just in Luke, uh, while 20% of Matthew is just in Matthew. And what's really interesting is that though they were written at the same time in different places by different people for different audiences, Matthew and Luke share things that Mark doesn't have. And so there was some kind of a shared source between Matthew and Luke. And then Luke had his own source, Matthew had his own source, and those are what we call the proto-gospels. That's how we think we've kind of dug backwards through this and said there were some sources here that we don't, uh, we, we don't have anymore, but we are sure existed. I find it fascinating. You guys might be asleep, um, but I, uh, I dig it. I just love knowing where these, where these stories come from. A few years after these three gospels were written, John wrote his gospel. The gospel of John, uh, he was probably 70 or so years old when he wrote it, which was ancient in those days, but he wanted to write it before he was gone. This was the guy that was Jesus' best friend. This was the guy that Jesus entrusted his mother to. This was the guy that Jesus' mother lived with. So, I mean, nobody knew the story like him, but John's gospel reads differently. It's very frustrating for new Christians. I don't recommend new Christians starting with John because the other gospels are trying to write a very orderly account, blow by blow, of Jesus' life. Like it happened then. He was born, and then he grew up and then he did awesome things and then you know like in order and then you open John's gospel and it's like in the beginning it was the word man and the word was God and the word was with God and the word was God and it was God it's like what is happening like was he born or like what happened and you get confused but listen that's by design. John didn't want to just repeat what had already been done. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing history. John's intention is to write theology. He wants you to know why Jesus came and what it means for your life. So before I was really a Christian, uh, Matthew and Luke were my favorite Gospels, but now that Jesus has my heart, uh, I'm really a big fan of 
John, it's, uh, it's a journey, and you grow and change over time. This is where I'm going to stop with your study guides. I'm going to pick up uh, where we leave off on those study guides today. Um, I want to end today's sermon with a story, with my story. Some of you know parts of this. Um, you know I was raised in church, in church every week, every day of every week. My dad was a preacher, and we were always there. And I thought as I was growing up, that I was a good Christian. I thought I was a good person. I thought I knew the Bible. But when I grew up and went to college, I realized pretty quickly that I knew nothing, that I could defend, I could, couldn't defend anything of my faith in the face of this rabid sort of secular humanism that had taken over my college campus, including the religion and philosophy departments where I spent a lot of my time. I realize now that I had been taught by my church what to think about God, but I hadn't been taught how to think about God and how to think through and rationalize my faith and why I believe the words on the pages in this book. And so my faith was just destroyed in a million pieces on the floor by some professors that I trusted and some of my friends and stuff too. It just kind of took on, that part of my life took on a life of its own. I became an agnostic. I became sort of an atheist, more of an agnostic, I imagine. But I still wanted to hold on to parts of the Bible too. And so what I started doing is I started um, trying to fit the Bible into my worldview because my new worldview, my post-Christian worldview was all about my ethics, my intellect, my politics. And I looked for Bible verses that fit into that, like we're all prone to do sometimes. And so I looked for the Bible verses about social justice, the Bible verses about helping the poor, and the Bible verses about religion being evil. And I just paid attention to those. And I kind of called myself a Christian after a while because I realized that I could justify my new secular worldview by using parts of the Bible that I liked. And all that stuff is pretty good stuff, but it's a very small part of what the Bible's about. So I left off other parts I didn't like as much. I left off a lot of the supernatural stuff that my intellect had no time for. I left off a lot of the sin and hell stuff that I just didn't want to think about and I didn't want to believe could be true. I left off a lot of the holiness stuff and why it's important to live a holy life. I left off the stuff about relying on God because I didn't want to rely on God. I wanted to rely on myself and use God as necessary. Like I, wanted to, I wanted to be self-sufficient, but when it hit the fan, I wanted God to be there at my beck and call just in case you know, so I could get what I needed to get through that season. That's, that's how I believed. Even as a, as a Christian, honestly, when I started preaching, that's where my heart was at. That's where my, my head was at with Jesus. And uh, the, the truth of the Bible didn't matter as much to me. I realize now I just didn't believe it was true. I was taught to believe it wasn't. I was taught to believe that all that mattered was that Jesus was a good guy and he makes me a good guy and that Christianity makes the world a better place and helps people. And that's pretty much the end of it. But all the stuff about him dying and resurrecting, eh, we'll leave that, you know, we'll leave that to the people that don't go to college. We'll leave that to Appalachians and we'll leave that to Arkansas, you know, all this stuff. So anyway, that's where my head was at, my arrogant head. 
I only say that because I'm sure there's people here that are just as hard-headed as I was. In 2013, a group of old women in Kansas City put some money together to pay half of my trip uh, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I started a Kickstarter to do the other half. Y'all remember Kickstarter? That used to be a thing. I did a Kickstarter to, to pay for the other half to go to the Holy Land. And my guide on this Holy Land, by God's grace, I'm convinced that God knew this had to happen. My guide was uh, an, an archaeologist and a scholar. And that's a good thing because if I had been given one of those typical religious, spiritualist, like tour guide, preacher guys, I wouldn't have listened to a word he had to say. But I had time for this scholar. I had time for this scientist. You know, he was on my level or so I thought. I told myself, you know, like he's worthy of my attention. And he got my attention. The first thing that got my attention is kind of a sideline thing, but he took us to Jericho, the ancient ruins of Jericho, which is fascinating to me because I had been taught specifically in an Old Testament class that the city of Jericho, as it's known in the Old Testament, and Joshua fit the battle and all that stuff, it's all a myth. It was a story of conquest that the Hebrew people made up because they wanted to feel better about their past, but nobody's ever seen Jericho, and it probably didn't exist, and here we were standing in Jericho, in the ruins, and there was that wall in ruins on the outside of, of the city that at some point had been destroyed. I know that's not proof. You guys are like, but that, it doesn't prove anything. Okay, it's not proof, but it's a clue. And there I stood. And then he took us to the ruins of ancient Jerusalem, which kind of rocked my world as well, because in the ruins of ancient Jerusalem that they're just excavating now, they're finding proof, evidence of King David's reign. And I remember reading in National Geographic and, and seeing on CNN that King David's existence was in question, that historians don't really believe that King David existed, that he too in his reign in that golden age of the Hebrew kingdom, it's all made up, that those outcast slaves, they just kind of made it up to feel better about who they used to be. And there we stood in the ruins of King David's kingdom with all kinds of evidence that the things the Bible said about him were true. It, uh, it didn't end there. He taught me and showed me evidence for uh, believing that the New Testament books that are in this Bible, they were fixed pretty much as a canon by the end of the first century. That's not what my professors taught me. It's definitely not, not what Dan Brown said in the Da Vinci Code, which I read almost as authoritatively as the Bible in that season of my life. But it's definitely not what he said. He said it was like 400 and something A.D., but we have evidence of church fathers quoting Paul's letters as scripture by the end of the first century. In the Bible, in one of the latest letters that's written, 2 Peter, it's, Peter says that Paul's letters are scripture. Peter says, you know, he actually, what he says is, Paul's crazy. I know y'all think he's crazy, and he's crazy, and some of his stuff is hard to understand. But listen, what he writes is every bit as important as the other scriptures are. And so I had all this evidence all of a sudden that, you know, there wasn't this great conspiracy to piece together the books we want and, like, keep out the ones we don't. By the end of the first century, it was pretty much fixed, with the exception of the book of Revelation, which nobody knew what to do with. We still don't, but it's there, and we can still wrestle with it. It's beautiful. We'll do a sermon series on it one day. But listen, uh, I kept learning all these things, and I learned, most importantly, that the first Christians who followed Jesus absolutely, evidently believed in the divinity of Jesus, that his closest followers, his own brothers, 
after his death and resurrection, believed so completely that he was God that they were willing to die upside down on crosses and in the mouths of hungry lions and from the roof of the Jerusalem temple. They were willing to die without ever recanting their faith. And God knows they could have, but not a single one of those men and women did. None of them ever said, you know what, uh, I take it back. I take it back. It's a lie. I'm sorry. You know, it, none of it ever happened. He's still in the tomb or he's in what's in his house or whatever. Like, they never said it. They chose to die because they believed it. Now, when I look at Jesus' own brothers, like James, who was willing to die for his brother as the son of God, like, what would it take for you to believe that your brother, if you have a brother, is the son of God or is God in the flesh? What would it take for you to believe that about your brother? Anything less then an empty tomb would leave you lacking faith, right? Like, no way, not my brother. But James died for the belief that his big brother was God. I stood in the first sanctuary of the Christian movement in Peter's mother-in-law's house in Capernaum, and my archaeologist guy, he told me, showed me these etchings on the wall that had been carbon dated to the 40s AD, just a decade after Jesus' life, where the people that knew him and walked with him were worshiping and writing on the walls so no one would ever forget what they believed. And they wrote things like Jesus Christ, God, God, Jesus Christ, Mary, mother of God. They were clearly lifting him up as a divine figure, as God in the flesh. And I had been told that the divinity thing was something the church made up in the third or fourth century when Constantine decided that Christianity would finally be the state religion of Rome. That's when they decided and made Jesus a god. But wait, the people that knew him said he was. And I had a, I had a matrix moment. I had my red pill moment, y'all. And I realized that I had, in fact, bought into a lie. I had bought into a myth, but the myth wasn't the Bible. The myth was all the lies people told me about the Bible. And I had given a part of my life to that lie. And all the stuff I had been told was untrue was the truth. All along, all I had to do was look for it myself. And it was there. And I could trust it. And I stood on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and I had this weird moment where everybody was staring at me because I was crying and laughing hysterically and saying, it's true, it's all true, it's true. <laughs> and I was texting my wife, like, incoherent things, and she's worried about, like, how much hookah I'm smoking in the Holy Land and, like, what is happening with my husband. But when I came back, it was evident to her. She's told me it was evident what happened because before I left, I was so self-centered because my worldview was about my intellect and my ethics, and my politics, but when I came back, I was ready to take a cross and die for her and for my kids and what they need and for my church and for my friends. I was ready to be selfless because I was following Jesus now, and Jesus was my altar now, and those altars of doubt, those altars of meaninglessness, I destroyed them in the Holy Land, and I came back with Jesus alone, and everything changed. I know that none of this clears up every single issue you're going to have with Scripture, every single question you're going to have about the Bible. I'm trying to spark you to or propel you to a new journey, to finally say, yeah, okay, I need, to, I need to see for myself and turn off all those other voices, turn off TV and turn off everything else and see for myself what I find in this book. Romans 15, 
um, verse 4, Paul ends this way, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through that encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I don't know all the answers. I just know now that God came from heaven to rescue me from myself, to rescue you, to make us again who we were always intended to be. And I can't describe to you the unspeakable joy I've had in my life since that day. Whereas before I sat around and listened to Bon Iver and said white boy music and just was depressed all the time because my altar was doubt. I oriented my life around doubt and everything was doubtful. I was doubtful, God was doubtful, my wife was doubtful, my purpose was doubtful, and I acted and lived as though I made decisions as though everything could be doubted. I came back with blessed assurance came out of that experience with inner peace and light and life, and it's all because of Jesus. I pray that Jesus works on your heart today and you will be open to where he's leading you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love and your patience with us, even as we work through our doubts. And we pray, I pray right now, that someone who's maybe struggled with doubts or been a little hard-headed or hard of heart, or maybe they've had some pain, inflicted on them by religious people in the past. I pray that all those walls would come down right now, that your spirit would move and lives would change and we would build a new altar to you in our hearts, that all the other altars would go away and that we would center our lives around you and that you would show us who we really are. We thank you in Jesus' name.